Amen. Thank you, Father Aaron. And uh, yes, from, from a message of greeting and, and welcome from your sister church out in the far west suburbs. Um, Father Trevor and Bonnie, I know, would send their greetings to you as well. And um, I'm really glad that I get to be here, uh, especially because now that I'm on summer break, I don't get to exercise my teaching muscles as much. So um, I'm going to give a quiz. No, I'm not going to give a quiz at the end. Uh, but I will begin with you, since this is the start of a series on a book, I will begin with you the way that I begin with many of my students um, as we begin to analyze a text. And that is just taking a brief look at the writer, uh, the context, the style, and the purpose for this piece of writing. Um, this brief letter uh, that we find here near the end of our Bibles was most likely written by the Apostle John, uh, the Gospel writer, uh, and it was written to the early church in about AD 90. Uh, unique to this particular letter is, is John's style that is very fluid and what we might call non-linear in its organization. This is not going to read like the deductive rhetoric of Paul. This is not making a, a strong argument here with claims and evidence and reasoning. Rather, First uh, John reads more like a, a sermon, or even as one commentator that I read said, compares it more like to a musical score uh, that keeps coming back to uh, a, a, the major theme with um, variations and different iterations on recurring minor themes. So while you're studying this book on your own and in corporate worship over the next few weeks, um, just look for those patterns of emphasis, those patterns that come through repetition and reiteration. Um, what you'll discover is that John's primary purpose is to provide us instruction and encouragement. Uh, first, to the early church, to the early Christians, and remaining to us, for those of us who want to know, even today, what it means to really live as a Christian. Um, among many other things that he will address is one specific primary question. How do I know if my faith is genuine? In a way, the epistle of 1 John might be seen as a series of, of tests or descriptions of genuine faith that John gives us so that we can have certainty about our faith or so that we can engage in some course correction if necessary. Ultimately, as we'll learn in chapter 1, and I do invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 John. You'll find near. Uh, we'll learn that his purpose for sharing these tests is twofold. Number one, so that we can participate in the fellowship and communion of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with one another in the church. And number two, that in this communion, our joy may be complete. So John begins, as we heard um, read so beautifully for us, by establishing his, his credibility, what we English teachers like to call his ethos, uh, as an apostle, this eyewitness of Jesus. And then he jumps right into his main point in verse 5. 
that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. As an English teacher, uh, I love studying the symbolism of of light. It's it's a common trope in storytelling, in literature, and in film, um, because it conveys purity, goodness, hope, delight, a sort of life-giving energy. It's, It's the sun rising over the battlefield to illuminate a flag still flying. It's the fireworks display that illuminates for a moment the terrifying darkness of a blackout in a popular musical in the Heights. (laughs) Conceptually, such illumination is wonderful. It's reassuring to know that, that there is a transcendent yet concrete reference point for our concepts of truth, beauty, and goodness. The darkness of the night would be intolerable if we didn't have reason to believe that day was coming. And yet privately, the coming of light may not always be as wonderful as it seems. I mean, if we get really honest with ourselves, we know that we long for injustice to be destroyed as long as God is willing to overlook the ways we flout laws or take advantage of social systems and bureaucratic loopholes. We long for oppression to cease as long as God ignores the way that we ourselves contribute to human exploitation so we can afford new devices or a new outfit or indulge our lusts. We pray for the well-being of widows and refugees as long as it doesn't negatively impact our bank account or our tightly packed schedules. The truth is, for as much as we long for light, there are times that we fear it. There are some deeds done in darkness that we hope are never exposed. And if we're honest, we know that there's darkness in us. Secret parts of our hearts and minds that we fear ever being brought to light. And we feel attention because we are hardwired to yearn, to walk in the light that John describes, to flourish in the presence of God, to be in open communion with him, as we were at the beginning of the human story that was described in Genesis. And if you know that story, you know there is a complication. This thing we call sin, a fall, an ongoing human defiance of God's commands. And yet, John tells us in verse 4 that that he's writing these things so that our joy, so that his joy, so that your joy can be complete. So how does this work? If there's darkness in us, and we know that there is no darkness in God, how can this ever be good joy-producing news? Well, as John will explain, the good news is that God has made a way for us to re-enter God's light. There is a means by which we can once again enjoy true communion and fellowship with him and with each other. To Jesus, he establishes in this opening paragraph, 
is the word of life made manifest. He is God incarnate. This is a concept I know that is very close to this church body. See, the person and work of Jesus is essential to John's explanation about how our darkness harboring humans can be brought into fellowship with the pure light of God. And the letter opens in a way that is similar to the gospel of John. And in fact, I would encourage you, um, if you find some time this afternoon or this week, to just read and reflect on the opening paragraph of the gospel of John and just see how similar it is to what he does here. And in this letter, John again reiterates that Jesus is the word of life made manifest, God with us, Emmanuel meaning that he is fully human and fully God. And then John doubles down on this claim by emphasizing how he himself saw Jesus and touched him. And most miraculously, how he was eyewitness to evidence that Jesus is eternal life. Of course, what we're talking about here is the resurrection, right? He saw Jesus executed and he witnessed the resurrected Christ. And this is absolutely essential to John's theology. I just want to be really clear. There is no hope in a merely historical Jesus. Jesus is eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. A claim that he could not make had he not witnessed the resurrection. So, We can have fellowship with God and with each other because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. John is very clear telling us not only what Jesus did, becoming Emmanuel and resurrecting, but also why he did it. So that you, he says, that's his audience, that ancient church, but also us, may have fellowship or communion with the church, the big C, universal church. And indeed, he says, our fellowship, our communion is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. But equally important, John tells us how we are brought into this communion, into this fellowship with God who is light. In verse 9, we read one of those verses that one of those pieces of good news that if you've been part of the church for a while, you know you've heard this before. If we confess our sins, Jesus will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will purify us so that we no longer have that darkness in us and we can once again walk in union with God. And John begs us to be honest here. He implores us to call Sin, sin. He pleads with us to avoid self-deception. That if we claim we don't have sin, not only are we being dishonest with ourselves, but we're also calling God a liar. Now, it's never comfortable to talk about sin, especially it's awkward for a guest preacher to come in and do that. But if I'm going to be faithful to the text, I have to go there. There is a popular belief in our culture that it is unhelpful, even damaging, to talk about sin. 
The cultural doctrine is that the most loving and humane act that we can make is to champion someone's self-actualization. But if we take John seriously, then we have to recognize that accurately naming certain behaviors as sin is meant not to shame and degrade, but to liberate and connect us. When talking about sin, it's often helpful to recognize that we're not only talking about wrongs that we ourselves do, but also the wrongs that are done to us. But either way, the path to forgiveness and healing begins by recognizing that a wrong has, in fact, been done. Uh, I recently saw a beautiful example of this. Perhaps some of you watched the series, The Chosen, um, and if you've been keeping up, you know that recently one of Jesus' disciples had a little mishap and went away from the, the, the group, fell back into some habits of sin. And after some of the other disciples went and brought this disciple back, there's this really tender moment where Jesus invites that disciple to look him in the face and says really gently, did you really think that you wouldn't ever sin again? Trying to wash away all of that guilt and shame. And then invites that disciple to say, I'm sorry. And immediately, Jesus is there with his arms enfolding in an embrace. It was, just, it was so beautiful to see it on screen, to see this vivid, I mean, it's what I long for in my moments, right? Of Jesus in his arms wrapped around me in friendship and love. So forgiveness and the delight and the joy that comes with it is contingent upon first calling sin, sin. Now John's message is not to a particular few here, those most broken individuals on the margins of society. This is a message for all of us. In fact, something I want to be really emphatic about is to remind us that this letter is written to Christians. So this is not an invitation for us to go out with placards and condemn our society. This is an invitation for us, the church, to confess and repent. That word repent means to actively turn away from those sinful behaviors, to name them and turn away, and turn toward God and the path of truth that he highlights for us throughout Scripture. Specifically this, walking in the light. When we do this, and when we do this together, calling each other to confession and repentance that we do every week here in the church, we support one another through the difficult work of confession and repentance. We model for the world what it looks like to be in true communion. With one another. So though we may fear it, there is much joy in confession. And it is from that place, brothers and sisters, that we are asked to love one another. In uh, the, the next sentence, uh, in chapter 2, um, John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you. And he continues on from there, which I'm sure you'll talk about soon. But that little phrase, my little children, is, is something uh, it's just a term of, of great affection that John has for his church. Um, the 5th century church father, Jerome, once shared an anecdote 
uh, that he had heard about the Apostle John um, from some early church members. And, and it goes like this. He says, the Apostle John used to be carried into the congregation in the arms of his disciples and was unable to say anything except, little children love one another. At last, weary that he always spoke the same words, they asked, Master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if only this is done, it is enough. Now, if you've been around the church for a little while, the phrasing of verse 4 may resonate uh, with you. It may sound kind of familiar. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's echoes of John's other writing, his gospel, in chapter 15, where we hear Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. He tells us, these things I have spoken, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full or complete. And then he gives us the pathway. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. In this metaphor, Jesus is a vine, a life source. And when we, his followers, abide in him, remain attached to him, soaking in him, then we bear fruit. And it is a fruit that is active. It is self-sacrificial love that empowers us to lay down our lives for another. It is a call to a very existential faith. Now, as Father Aaron mentioned, I teach English when I, I have the privilege of being able to teach philosophy to high school seniors. Um, and I always enjoy talking about this one philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. You might recognize his name, um, but you might not know that actually much of his philosophical writings actually begin more as theological writings. Because at the core, what motivated Kierkegaard was this idea that beliefs ought to shape behaviors. And he was frustrated by the flimsy faith of the cultural Christians around him. And he wrote much to chastise and condemn his anemic Christian, air quotes, culture. In an early essay, Kierkegaard wrote, what matters is to find a purpose to see what it really is that God wills that I shall do. The crucial thing is to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. Isn't that something we all long for? It's something that both Kierkegaard and John knew could be found in the church correctly embodied. It's no coincidence that John's ethos is anchored firmly in the incarnation, because that is exactly what he is calling us, the church, to be. When the church is what is intended to be, the ongoing embodiment of Christ in our midst. In that moment, John says, our joy as believers is made complete. How do we know if our faith is genuine, John asked? Our beliefs will shape our behaviors. And fortunately, in a sacramental 
liturgical context, our worship also shapes our beliefs. So said another way, the opening of 1 John suggests that our joy as Christians, as humans, is complete when we experience full fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we experience here by a full fellowship in the church. For John, to walk in the light means to practice the truth, the life of genuine faith. And we cannot escape the centrality of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and love for God and our neighbors in that process. I want to close with a prayer that was actually penned by Soren Kierkegaard that I think will be very encouraging to us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you have loved us first. Help us never to forget that you are love so that this sure conviction might triumph in our hearts over the seduction of the world, over the inquietude of the soul, over the anxiety of the future, over the fright of the past, over the distress of the moment. But grant also that this conviction might discipline our soul so that our heart might remain faithful and sincere in the love which we bear to all those whom you have commanded us to love as we love ourselves. All this we ask in the name and for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.